welcome to Fieldlink. I'm your host, Bill Smith, and thank you for joining us for our 40th episode. Picture this, endless rows of vibrant green soybean plants stretching across the horizon, a site that represents not just farmers' hard work, but also the vital source of nutrition for people and livestock alike. However, lurking beneath the surface, hidden from view, lies a duo of formidable adversaries that threaten to undermine these efforts. Phytophthora root rot, often referred as the silent destroyer, is a soil-borne pathogen that attacks soybean plant root systems, impairing their ability to uptake water and nutrients. Just like a thief at night, it robs the plants of their vitality, ultimately leading to reduced yields and financial losses for farmers. And speaking of adversaries, imagine a scenario where your thriving soybean plants suddenly show signs of distress. Leaves yellowing, wilting, and falling off prematurely. A phenomenon that has been aptly named sudden death syndrome. What's causing this abrupt decline? Is it a disease? A nutrient deficiency? Or something else entirely? Joining us on this episode is Matt Boyer. Matt's an agronomist from the Midwest, and he's going to dig in and give us some insight on both SDS as well as Phytophthora root rot. Plus, joining us from Nashville is Jody Lawrence, and as we discuss the impact of the recent weather patterns in the United States, plus the Ukrainian and Russian forces intensify bombings in key ports, The war has surpassed 600 days of conflict and continues to create havoc in the global grain markets. Stay tuned for this special episode of FieldLink. And welcome back to FieldLink. And on this episode, we've got Matt Boyer. Matt's an agronomist up in the Midwest of the U.S. Matt, welcome to FieldLink. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. Awesome. Today, uh, Matt, there's a lot of stuff going on, getting a lot of reports uh, across uh, your region about uh, some some diseases in soybeans. What are, you, what are you hearing about, Matt? Yeah, so now that we're getting into the mid to late reproductive stages, it seems like some guys are seeing some Phytophthora root rot out there as well as some SDS. I've had some calls lately. So let's deep dive a little bit into uh, Phytophthora root rot and let's talk a little bit about some of the symptoms around that particular uh, soil-borne disease. Tell us a little bit about it. Where does it come from and you know, how, how do growers determine whether they have it or not? Yeah, so Phytophthora root rot and stem rot is a fungal pathogen and it can actually infect the plant anytime throughout the year. Early on, we typically some water-soaked lesions and some wilting dead plants. However, when we get into the latter vegetative growth stages and into the reproductive stages, you really start seeing that root rot phase. And what that looks like are dark chocolate brown lesions or discoloration, if you will, on the lower stem. And that dark brown discoloration is really the dead giveaway for this disease. And it starts right at the soil level, maybe a little bit below, and it works its way up the stem two to three nodes approximately. In addition to that discoloration on the stem, you'll actually see some chlorosis and wilting of leaves. And those leaves typically remain attached to the plant. But when you're driving by the field, you'll first see the leaves that are wilted. 
And then when you go walk out, you can actually see that discoloration on the stem. And that's kind of the dead giveaway for it. Now, Matt, I've been kind of told that this, uh, you know, phytophthora root rot really can be uh, flared up, if you will, when we have a really kind of a season like we've been looking at. Things get a little dry on the front end, but then we start to get some moisture in the latter reproductive stages. And we start to really... Uh, flare this uh, disease up. Is that is that pretty accurate? Yeah. So oftentimes when we have stress on a plant for quite a while and then we give it some good growing conditions, we can see those symptoms, right? Specifically with this one, because the fungal pathogen that causes this loves saturated soils and warm soil temperatures. And that's exactly where we're at right now. And that uomycete needs that to infect those roots. So we're we're in a great environment for it. So the incubator is really rocking and rolling right now as we get a little more moisture throughout a bulk of the Midwest. And those temperatures are, are up there, that's uh, for sure. Uh, Matt, uh, are, you, you mentioned earlier on you've been getting a lot of calls. Where are your calls kind of predominantly coming in from? Um, so Iowa, Missouri, just kind of all over, right? Realistically, it, the rain has been so spotty. That it just depends. I can't say, hey, they're all from Iowa. They're all from Illinois. Um, it's those areas that have had some pretty heavy precipitation amounts, you know, a couple inches of rain. And also guys that have poorly drained soils, right, or low-lying areas or high organic matter soils, those are often the ones that are going to see this disease first. Well, Matt, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about, you know, there are some things we can control and some things we can't in agriculture. And this is one that's it's kind of hard to control and, and prevent, but there's some things that we can do. Let's Let's talk a little bit about that. Yep, absolutely. So once we have it, it's not a leaf disease or anything that we can go out and spray a fungicide foliarly and control it that way, right? But first and foremost, we got to look at what um, soybean varieties we're putting out there. We want to make sure that we at least have some of those resistant varieties, right? We have some RPS genes that can be useful, and they'll probably not protect against every individual race, but they're still going to help us greatly, and I'd want to make sure that we're going out with some resistant varieties, um, seed treatments can also be useful to help specifically early on, right? Let's control that disease when we can. Um, culturally, we can rotate away from, you know, corn and then to or soybeans and then to corn and then back to soybeans. That's going to help. It's not going to be perfect just because those oospores can survive for quite a long time. Another thing that people can do and most have already if they're able to, but Drainage, right? Field tile is really going to help drain those soils so that we try not to have long periods of free water. So those are some really good cultural practices and things to think about. You know, if, if a grower's out there starting to see phytophthora root rot right now, there's some good steps there. I know a lot of growers are going to be thinking about, especially Helena customers, thinking about, in, in your region, the Seed First program coming up pretty soon, thinking about, um, here's a great time to sit down with your Helena representative to talk about seed. And, and this, is, this is an area that uh, might want to pay a little closer attention to when uh, picking those varieties this fall. Yep. Absolutely. And not only get that variety with the RPS gene that you want, but make sure that we're planning on getting that seed treated as well, right? Those are those are the top two things that we need to try and manage this disease. And even focus on making sure the right varieties are going on the fields that have the highest pressure, right? We're, we know what fields they are, so let's write them down and make sure that we remember that. 
not necessarily for this next year, but when they come back to soybeans as well. So that 2025 growth year. Yeah, that's a really great point, Matt. So once once you identify uh, phytarthra root rot in a field, the chances of it being there next year or even two years, maybe even three years down the road, is still pretty strong in most cases. Is that right? Is that 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 fungus once it's there, it's there? Yeah, probably going to have it. And if it's a poorly drained field, if we can fix the drainage, yeah, that might help. You know, anytime we get compaction or stress on those plants, a lot of times the best place to scout for these diseases is on your field entrances, right? Just because it's it's a great place to look for disease. Mm, definitely. Yeah, the, the, and it's a lot easier to access those points as well and uh, a lot of activity there, and that's where stuff's going to get spread around quite a lot. So, uh, Matt, we covered uh, Phytophthora root rot, certainly an important uh, factor going on right now, a lot of growers. What are some things that they need to really, you mentioned, as far as scouting, there's not a whole lot you can do at this stage, but maybe manage that a little bit towards the harvest time, uh, move that towards the front end of the rotation. Would that be a good advice? What's the best strategy here on the harvest side? I don't know. In terms of harvest, I don't know if it's going to help one way or another if they combine them earlier or later. Chances are, um, if we're infecting those plants now, they'll probably be wilted and dead and probably not going to contribute a lot to yield. So the later that we start seeing these symptoms, the better off we are. And how long can we, uh, grower in the Midwest, for example, anticipate, could this string out for another 30, 60, 90 days yet? Yeah, I'd say probably, you know, as long as we're filling those pods, if the leaves are green, we can still see where they're at. That being said, you don't have to have the leaves to um, identify that disease. If you go out and you see some areas where everything's wilted up and it, the leaves didn't um, fall off like normal, didn't go through a normal senescence, you could go out and still inspect those stems for that dark chocolate brown discoloration the day you're combining and probably see that. It's harder, but you still would likely be able to see that. So let's transition a little bit to the other culprit out there, uh, SDS, uh, sudden death syndrome. That's, a, you know, a that's an animal that's out there too. It sounds like you've been getting a few calls. Tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about SDS and what what they can expect when they see that. Yeah, so SDS um, is an interesting disease because this is one that you see the leaf symptoms, right? You'll drive by, and the foliar symptoms we typically start seeing um, during these mid, early, somewhere in there, the reproductive stages, and they're pretty obvious, right? You start off seeing some yellow spots on the leaves. And then you eventually end up with large chlorotic or necrotic blotches between the leaf veins, and the veins often remain green. So it's very distinctive what it looks like. Oh, I was going to say it can be misleading, too, because you're thinking you're doing the 50-mile um, the drive-by. You might think, oh, I'm, I'm low in potassium, I'm low maybe in nitrogen, or you know, there's a nutrient deficiency, or there's an insect. It may have nothing to do with that. Yep, and that's where you actually need to go out and physically look at those leaves and take a good look. If you don't know exactly what you're looking at, luckily with smartphones now, take a picture and text it to somebody who does, right? Because um, the crazy thing about these actual symptoms, right? There's a couple other diseases like, you know, brown stem rot or stem canker that can also look very similar. And that's where we got to start digging into the plant, looking at roots and looking at stems to really identify which one it is. Because in the case of you know, SDS, what I think it's interesting is we're not actually seeing the pathogen in the leaf. We're just seeing um, an expression of a toxin that's produced in the roots that gets transported up to the leaves. And when it gets sunlight, 
we see that symptomology. The disease is actually a root rot disease. And so that's why to really identify it, we dig that plant up and we want to inspect those roots. And if they just look rotten, um, discolored, a brown color, and oftentimes if you have moisture present, you can actually see a, uh, a blue fungal growth on the roots as well. And that's a pretty good indicator that we're dealing with SDS. Well, uh, de- definitely. Uh, and, and let's talk a little bit, Matt, uh, about preventative uh, maintenance here, or is there anything a grower can do to, to, to save his or her crop in this situation? There, there's not perfect solutions to this, but there's a lot of things that we can do because it can actually be a pretty big deal, right? And we typically see the worst Um, symptoms again when we get rainfall and we can have good high yielding years right so management um, varietal selection again and we can apply some seed treatments that have some efficacy on this fusarium pathogen that is the pathogen causing this disease and another thing that isn't you wouldn't always think about but it is actually related is if we can reduce our scn populations or plant soybean cyst nematode resistant soybeans we can help mitigate this disease because it's kind of like a, one thing's beaten up on you and another one is, and then they are actually even worse together. Kind of a compounding effect then is what you're saying. Absolutely. And at times, delayed planting has been tossed around when we want to manage SDS. And the reason for that is that fusarium pathogen infects the plant within a couple days of planting, right? And the perfect conditions are cold, wet conditions for that infection to take place. So the idea is if we wait till later in the season, we should have warmer temperatures in the soil. And so we're less likely to have as bad of an effect. But that's a fine line because we know we need to plant beans early to get high yields usually. Yeah, it's kind of a tough, uh, I guess it's it's the art of, uh, you know, managing your best uh, case scenario. But Matt, with SDS, is there a trend there? If if a grower identifies SDS in, in a soybean field, for example, this year, what's the likelihood of him or her having that in another year, a couple years from now? Is there a trend like that or, or does it, is it just hit and miss? This one, there's kind of some, you can find different things either way, but the chances are, if you have SDS out there, you're going to probably have it again, right? Very likely. It's typically one that's going to hang around. The bigger thing is if you plant and you don't get a lot of rain for a little while, we shouldn't have as high a chances of that because it hasn't infected. Although this year, it seems like some people are finding this disease and they didn't have that typical cold wet right after planting. So mm, so it th- sounds like the disease is adapting a little bit then potentially. Yeah, it's just, there's a lot we don't know about this one, but there's just a lot of things that can can affect it, right? Soil compaction is another one, right? You know, SCN, same thing, right? Both of those can have higher pressure on field entrances. So that's probably the first place that you're going to see it in a field. Matt, you talked about SCN a little bit, you know, tell our growers and listeners a little bit more about SCN, what that really is, and how does that impact overall yield as well? Yeah, soybean cyst nematodes are an extremely detrimental pest, um, probably the most important or the most detrimental pest we have in soybeans. And they're the ones that we really, you could go out and look at a field and not even realize we've taken 20% of the yield off. But we have because we don't see the symptoms of soybean cyst nematode. They're just chewing and eating up on our roots and affecting that plant greatly. So it's a very detrimental pest. And it's kind of a, I guess, a, a slow yield robber 
is how I would describe that. And to your point, it's not like you walk out and you see just dead plants necessarily, but it's just slowly sucking the top end yield potential uh, out of a crop in most cases. Absolutely. Like I think the numbers are 20 to 40% and you don't even see a symptom of it, right? The only way to really know you have it is one, and it's actually really easy to do. We can go out and take soybean cyst nematode samples, right? Just soil probe and measure the, they're actually measuring the eggs out there. But it's a very easy thing to be to do can be done after soybeans are harvested, can be done in corn stalks going to soybeans the following year. That's really the only way that we can quantify what the chances for soybean cyst nematode issues are going to be. So Matt, as a, a good solution, there's to reach out to Helena representative and get a high ground test and make sure you're doing a SCN test uh, on that field to you know get a gauge. Where are you standing for those egg counts? Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And not only that, it will help us know which varieties we need to be positioning in that field, right? Because we have some resistant varieties and there's different um, means of that resistant being in there. Um, however, soybean cyst nematodes are absolutely adapting to some of the resistant methods that we're using. And we just need to be very vigilant and use effective means of resistance. Sure. Yeah, uh, this is one of those animals too, uh, these world of pathogens and diseases. We've got to really look at uh, a multiple prong approach. Uh, there's not a silver bullet today uh, it, with many of these. Is that correct? Absolutely. And they all kind of like you said, just nibble away. Definitely uh, some silent killers, some silent yield killers. You know, we can be looking at a pretty good crop and all of a sudden uh, get robbed some top end yield here, especially as we get into this reproductive and pod filling time of year. So Matt Boyer, um, you know, want to thank you for joining us here on our 40th episode of the FieldLink podcast and sharing your insight on soybean uh, production and, and how to best manage some of the hidden killers out there. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Matt. And welcome back to Field Lake. We're going to head over to Nashville as we catch up with Jody Lawrence. Uh, Jody, there's an awful lot happening right now. It sounds like Groundhog Day, uh, but boy, we still have uh, Russia and Ukraine making headlines. Uh, the weather's also turning uh, the heads of a lot of traders right now. And of course, we got the USDA coming out uh, with their August uh, monthly report. So Jody, what's happening in the grain markets today? Well, Bill, it's good to be back. Hope everybody had a good weekend. Uh, yeah, it's the weather and Russia-Ukraine have been the two dominant stories all summer. And in May and June and early July, the weather was very bullish uh, and uh, producers were stuck in hot, dry conditions and worried about yield. And the Ukraine-Russian situation kept bouncing back and forth from will the grain uh, will the grain initiative be extended? And then it wasn't extended. And now with in more intensified bombing of the port facilities, Russia has moved back to a more a somewhat supportive bullish factor, while the U.S. weather has gone a complete 180 and is now uh, a very uh, you know, great for yield, bad for price. We're stuck on the double edge of the sword. Uh, you know, just the cannibalistic nature of farming. When everybody does a great job, the prices tend to go down. Right. Yeah. And in and, and other countries inside of uh, Eastern Europe, looking at alternatives for uh, logistics, you know, uh, I know Romania had some uh, ideas there moving uh, grain throughout some of their port access, but also through rails. Uh, 
there's still just going to be a whole lot of question marks in the, that as we get into harvest time over in the in in that part of the country. Yeah, it's 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 been a very strange and completely hard to read situation on how all of the wheat, corn, sunflower, uh, all the all the other products that are coming out of the greater Black Sea area are getting on rail and getting to the food starved countries of Africa, but to this point. It re- there really have not been other other than trying finding alternate routes. They've found alternate r- routes pretty easily because the, one week you've got all the EU members and their farmers and their departments of agriculture pushing back against Ukraine uh, wheat going through, and then they realize that they have a bigger humanitarian need to have all of that wheat get to where it needs to be in Africa. So Russia's certainly not having any problem. That may uh, begin to come to an end uh, with the intensified bombing because Ukraine is now targeting Russian ports, Russian commercial vessels. They hit a uh, oil tanker over the weekend. And when you look at a couple key logistic areas, if Russia goes off, goes after the Danube River port and Ukraine goes after the Azov Bridge, and that would cut down what amounts to somewhere around 15%, give or take, of all Russian export capacity that comes out of the Azov Sea if that bridge were to be taken out. So you've got two very strategic targets that have been attacked within the last week. And at, at some point, you worry that uh, you know, it, it's a war and it's a horrible thing, but this certainly could escalate to to much worse situation, much more unpredictable because you still have a nuclear power plant in play. So uh, hard to read right now, but wheat is, you know, bouncing along like there are no world disruptions and the world had a very substantial crop this year. That is changing because uh, on the wheat, grain, rice markets, India has announced uh, end of exports to several varieties of the wheat that they grow domestically to uh, tame their food inflation and also be in, in a more food secure area because they have got they've had their production problems over this summer and over this year. And if you look at the price of rice, uh, rice is the most bullish market on the board, which ultimately spills over as we look to 24, you know, to 24 U.S. acres. What happens in the Delta for all those farmers that can uh, move over bean acres, some corn acres, I believe it's all more bean acres and even some cotton acres potentially uh, to rice to make more money. So the Black Sea and is going to have a very long tail, and but right now it's not causing nearly the problems that uh, we would have thought, you know, 12, 13 months ago. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point. You know, we're certainly catching a lot of headlines, but but folks, we're into over six hundred days of a war. Uh, as if, and it's hard to believe when you really step back and take a look at that, and how every headline, every it seems like every. 12, 14 days, we've got a different headline, but the results are kind of the same, aren't they, Jody? Yeah, once uh, everybody got over, really, if you go back and look at the wheat chart uh, and where wheat prices have been dragging along since the initial Black Sea Export Corridor deal, the price of wheat is, you know, what you would consider fair value if 
if you looked at the supply and demand tables and didn't know anything else about what was happening in the world. It's, uh, you know, largely unaffected. And that also has put a damper on corn that we weren't expecting as corn uh, has gotten a late season kick from all the rain. But it, with December corn sitting at 497 is when just uh, three or four weeks ago, we were trading well above $6. Uh, I, you know, weather is king in July and August and uh, everybody in this industry knows it. Uh, but it's been a while since we've seen such a dramatic shift from uh, you know, really, really uh, almost historically bad growing conditions to a point where we may be able to salvage the corn crop and get back near trend and also produce a record bean crop. Right. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the weather right now and what you're seeing on the board uh, as things are trading right now as we're recording this on the 7th of August. Uh, what what are beans and corn looking like right now, Jody? Well, if you look at price, you've got November beans trading right at $13 on futures and December corn right at $5. And those certainly have come well off the lows because you were trading high 13s on beans not even 10 days ago. And corn, obviously, during the uh, worst of the heat in June and early July was well above $6. But if you look at what I'm hearing back from uh, the field from rain reports. You've got uh, certainly the rain has helped. It, it helped corn, but the heat and dryness is something that we may not know till we get combines in the field because not only are you having just small amounts of tip back, you're having major amounts of tip back to where half of the cob has no kernels. And then there's kernel depth issues. And obviously, this all goes into test weight and all the other things. But right now, now, when you start doing, and Pro Farmer Tour will start next week along with some other private crop tours, they'll go out and they'll see this, but it's almost impossible just to take general surveys and come up with an idea uh, unless you get a wide enough area from fields that, you know, potentially could be, uh, you know, uh, at trend or better to those that were really, really hampered by the uh, the May and June dry, dry hot weather. So, it, you know, we, we've got some time. It's not nearly as clear cut as it has been in past years of, yes, the crop is here because there's still very wide opinion inside the industry between a 170 crop and a 178 crop on corn. And you're talking the difference between you know, 425 corn and 550 corn with that yield difference. Yeah. And uh, when you step back and take a look at that, you're looking at, like you said, corn trading at five bucks. Um, um, there's there's some room there uh, considering crop insurance too as a play. I mean, growers are sitting in a pretty decent spot considering all the craziness with the Ukraine and all the craziness with the weather we've had this year. It looks to be pretty secure right now. Is that a pretty fair statement? Well, yeah, that, that's a very fair statement because the February insurance average was 591 and a quarter for corn. And depending on what level of protection a producer took, whether it was the, the you know the bare minimum seventy to seventy five, or bumped it up with all the bells and whistles and got it to eighty seven or eighty eight, but at five ninety one, there've really only been a handful of weeks, and there have been no weeks since you felt comfortable about your yield to be able to sell above that price. So with that insurance level coverage at five ninety, and now trading, 
you know, a full 95 cents below that, very difficult to get motivated about selling corn when, you know, you take an average fall delivery basis here, which is probably 20, 30 under in most places. Uh, all of a sudden, 460 corn isn't that appetizing when you know you've got uh, coverage all the way up at 591. You've also got be the bean average was 1376. And you're 76 cents below that, so um, it, it's very it's very difficult to get motivated to sell down here when you look at everything else that's going on in the world. And you really the markets are battling have been for the last week the escalation in Russia and Ukraine against the great U.S. weather because this morning you've got wheat up 20 and you've got beans down 34. Right, right, right. Wow, just a, definitely a, a time to be really close to your uh, strategic trading advisor to take advantage of some of those crop insurance opportunities or uh, other trading opportunities out there. The markets are getting more and more complex. I would love to say that our world could get simpler at some point, but unfortunately, I just don't see how it's going to do it. But if you boil it down to the simplest form of it, and I talked about it in the newsletter this weekend, producers want yield, and that's what their job is. And you've got to be very mindful of where your bottom line is right now. You know, as prices have gone down, how much have, has your yield gone up? If your yield's gone up at a greater ratio than the prices have gone down, you're making as much or more money, <clears throat> excuse me, than you were, you know, when corn was at $6. So uh, maybe not $6, but certainly mid, you know, uh, mid five level. So uh, it, yeah, it's a time, it's certainly not a time to, uh, uh, you know, divorce yourself from the markets just because they've fallen because now it's, now's the time to update all of your budgets from both the yield standpoint and uh, figuring in your crop insurance to see what we're doing. And as that always breeds the next discussion that I've already gotten in several field days and put out some, I'd, uh, or at least a recommendation this weekend, start looking at your 24 uh uh, or certainly your fall fertilizer needs for post-harvest application, but also look at your 24 uh, because you've got Russia adding an 8% export tax. You, there's no telling what could go on there. Uh, natural gas has really uh, been the driving force on why so many of the inputs, uh, input prices on the fertilizer side have gone down because natural gas has not followed crude and diesel because you got crude back over $82 a barrel and we were trading 68.70 for the longest time and you've got diesel back over uh, $3 on the futures and, you know, I saw some 450 diesel. Well, I was driving around this week and certainly some uh, $4 unleaded gasoline. So if natural gas catch, catches fire and natural gas could catch fire very easily simply because if we go into what we thought the problem was going to be in the winter of 22-23, uh, uh, if it gets really cold in Europe and Russia decides to cut it off, and then Europe has to go into the world marketplace, nitrogen will go back up. And right now, while you're, because while you've got, I, I, certainly a discount to last year, but uh, an opportunity, because we are starting to see some fertilizer prices start to tick up uh, in, in a consistent manner, manner over the last five, six weeks. So it's a good time to look ahead uh, at, at, at the whole big picture. Uh, and that, 
starts with inputs for uh, 2024 also. Yeah, definitely keeping an eye on inputs. Uh, you know, certainly a lot of volatility in the energy market. And, and I think that's going to be a continuing theme, especially as long as this, this war in uh, Europe continues on. And, you know, uh, some, some of the insecurity, too, uh, taking place in China and Taiwan, certainly impacting some of that narrative as well. Uh, but, Jody, August, uh, we've got the USDA coming up with their monthly report, certainly going to potentially uh, impact some of the, the chatter and noise uh, in terms of trading. Uh, what are some of your predictions as we take a look at this report going to be coming out here at the end of the week? There, well, Bill, the report's going to be coming out Friday, August 11th, so this Friday at 11 o'clock Central Chicago time. And the biggest variable that everybody is trying to figure out is what the USDA is going to put in for yield because they came in uh, at the last report with a 177 and a 51 and a half. And with the sudden turn to much more uh, conducive bean yield conditions, it now is not going to surprise me if the USDA bumps that number back up to 52 on beans. And certainly uh, you look at the price of November beans, it's reflecting at almost a dollar off where we were a couple weeks ago. And on corn, uh, really a coin flip because corn, no doubt, was hurt uh, really badly in May and June and early July in a lot of areas. And while there was some yield salvaged, it's hard to imagine at that late stage that this rain and cooler weather has added substantial yield. So uh, we've got the, basically we have everybody making very uh, solid arguments between a 170 and a 178 U.S. corn yield. And like I said earlier, that's the difference between 425 and 550. So where it falls probably, just like everything else, somewhere in the middle, uh, but I do not expect the USDA to get to this number in uh, in Friday's report. Uh, but I've, I've got to think, speaking to everybody I've, I've talked to, where everybody is, the, the national yield somewhere in the 173, 174. And that would be supportive uh, to to corn prices here to slightly higher. It's just a matter of how long the USDA drags their feet and waits on their test plots to get that physical hard information to put it in. So it may be the October report before we start to see, uh, you know, the real depth of what that May-June heat did. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point here. You know, this report's going to be important here at the end of the week here in August. But uh, pro, as you mentioned earlier, Pro Farmer Tour is going to be kicking in here in a few weeks. Uh, we'll have a lot of scouts and agronomists across the nation sending in reports. That's going to help uh, ground things out a little bit. And boy, that October report's going to really probably uh, tell the final story. And on the agronomy side, I do want to have one shout out for Helena's own Dr. Greg Willoughby and his uh, continued improvement and rehabilitation after some uh, complications with his knee replacement because uh, we all need him. And I, I certainly need uh, all of his insight and help and hope that he's feeling better because I know he listens to the podcast. That sounds great. Uh, shout out to Dr. Willoughby for sure for uh, hope he gets better. Uh, Jody, want to thank you for joining us for here on this uh, episode of the Field Link podcast. And uh, we look forward to having you on our show next time. All right. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for joining us on this episode of FieldLink, our 40th episode. Be sure to download the FieldLink podcast and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. 